Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together occasionally for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap back with you today. I'm a UCC pastor just recently moved to the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee, Erie, and Winraranon peoples. I just moved here a few weeks ago, and we'll tell you more about that in a moment. I'm the Faith Coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith and SURGE Action, and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it including in our own Christian tradition. and We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. So, greetings from Buffalo, New York. We moved here about a month ago for a great new pastorate my beloved is now serving. It's a big change from Denver, from the mile high to down low on the ground, from high dry prairie to water everywhere with Lake Erie running alongside us and the power of Niagara Falls just north of us. The green here is lush and bright and deep and the sunlight softer on the eyes. We went for a walk yesterday through the big park in the heart of town where the cherry blossoms are in full bloom and we found wild herb friends growing everywhere along the lakeshore. I think I'm going to like it here. Yesterday was May Day, or Beltana in Old Celtic tradition, that marking of another turn of seasons, a liminal transition time. That's what it's felt like in our life since late February, a liminal time where often I've not quite known what day or even season it is between the grief of leaving and the excitement of arriving, a season shifting, It's disorienting, this in-between time. That's something like where we are in the gospel readings right now. In-between, liminal, transition time. Somewhere in the grief after Jesus' execution, but not yet at the arrival, whatever that may be. And do we ever arrive? We've seen him now a couple of times in John's gospel, so we know the season has shifted but it's still a bit cold and gray, and we don't quite yet know what to do. We are building a love. 
Do you love me? Do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Here, two Sundays out from Easter, we find ourselves at the very end of John's Gospel. Mary Magdalene has heard her name called and been sent to share the good news. Thomas has witnessed the wounds in the midst of locked gatherings. And now this week, some of Jesus' community have gone fishing. When Jesus shows up walking along the lakeshore, offering instructions for a huge catch. And then he makes them breakfast, bread and fish cooked over a fire. It's a quiet scene, except perhaps for when Simon Peter hauls in that huge catch of fish. They're all sitting there around the fire on the lake shore at daybreak. There's not much talking. Jesus just does what he always seems to do. He feeds his people. I wonder if the disciples are remembering another time Jesus fed people bread and fish by this same lake. 5,000 people with 12 baskets full of leftovers. Do you love me? Simon, do you love me? After breakfast, Jesus asks Simon Peter this question three times, and Peter responds. The NRSV has the story like this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Most folks think this triple set of questions from Jesus with the invitation to respond is offering Peter an undoing of his triple denial during the mockery that was Jesus's trial. Remember, all the Gospels have this story that during Jesus's trial, Peter, who is hovering somewhere nearby, is asked three times if he knows Jesus, and he denies it all three times. Jesus actually predicts that Peter will do this, and he does. This triple reaffirmation opportunity from Jesus is a gracious act on his part, and I think that's certainly part of what is going on here. The opportunity for grace, for forgiveness, the opportunity to be reminded of who he is. But why? What is that triple reaffirmation that grows more vehement from Peter each time? What is it for? Why is John telling us this story? Do you love me? 
do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? been thinking a lot about Peter since Holy Week. On Wednesday of that week, I went with another pastor to accompany a young Guatemalan woman for her asylum hearing. She's been detained for well over a year at the for-profit immigration detention facility in Batavia, New York. She was to have her hearing to determine whether she would be granted asylum in the courtroom built into that facility. I did not know her, but was asked if I could attend, and so my new pastor friend and I drove out to Batavia, which is really the middle of nowhere in western New York. We learned after we arrived that the hearing would be conducted by video. That is, the judge, sitting in her office in Buffalo, would be live-streamed into the courtroom where Anna and her lawyer and the U.S. immigration prosecutor would be sitting. Apparently, this is a thing now. In another courtroom in the facility, the judge was being live-streamed in from Texas. So judges deciding the fates of other humans never have to breathe the same air or be physically present to another human's anguish while they make their imperial decisions. A mockery of a trial. Because they can call it a hearing, but it's a trial. A trial to prove whether or not you're worthy enough, if you've suffered enough, if you're innocent enough, if you are who you say you are, what is truth, Pilate mocked Jesus. But what got me thinking about Peter in particular was that we were not allowed in the courtroom. Not the other pastor and I, not even her social worker. The lawyer argued for us to be present, but the judge refused. As many times as I have gone to court before with folks, I have never had this happen. So we stood hovering outside the courtroom door, listening as hard as we could as she told her terrifying story, watching through the small window as she trembled and shook, recounting threat after threat. We sent our prayers and our breath through that door, but it didn't feel like enough. It never feels like enough. The judge suspended the hearing because it had gone on too long, and the young woman was taken back to her cell. She was weeping. We were not allowed to speak to her. And as I stood there outside that door, I thought about Peter hovering outside Jesus' trial, what he might have seen, what he might have heard, as his friend was interrogated and beaten, what anguish he must have felt, What despair must have led to his denial? What more could he have done anyway that wouldn't have led him to getting the same treatment? Hovered outside that door, I wanted to make up a new story, that somehow Jesus' prediction that Peter would deny him was some kind of code. Like, if they ask you if you know me, don't tell them anything. It's good security culture practice to keep the broader movement safe. But I think I want it to mean that to make myself feel better. 
somehow making it okay that all I knew how to do was hover outside, praying, being quiet to not piss off any guards. What more could I have done anyway? Anyway, I felt a lot of compassion for Peter, and it's still true that he denied knowing Jesus. And in John's gospel, unlike the others, they are all in the same space together. At least for the first denial, they are all in the courtyard of one of the religious leaders who is collaborating with Rome. So Jesus is right there when Peter claims not to know him. And Peter is right there when Jesus is interrogated and beaten and hauled away. And then Peter denies knowing him again and again. Do you love me? Do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? So imagine Jesus by the fire on the lake shore, looking across at Peter and asking him if he loved him, offering the undoing, as if Peter's denials could be undone. Such a gracious act from Jesus. I come back again to the question, why? Is this just a story about individual personal forgiveness for individual personal sin? Maybe, but I think there's more. In the spirit of three, three denials, three reaffirmations, I see three lessons we can learn from this story. Three sets of three, a nice sacred number. Three lessons to carry with us on this journey towards collective liberation. These three lessons are grounded in understanding some of the dynamics happening in John's Gospel, which are reflected in the tension throughout the narrative between Jesus and just about everyone else around him. There were many flavors of Jesus' followers after the community started trying to live again after his execution. There wasn't just one way to be a Jesus follower. That's why we have four Gospels, for example. And Paul talks about this in his letters, that he has a way, and Peter has a way, and Apollos has a way, others as well, and they don't always agree. In fact, sometimes they're in major conflict. So the community that developed John's gospel and the three letters of John had their own way. Scholars call it the Johannine community, or John's community. And part of what's happening in John's Gospel is a big critique of what is becoming the more dominant way, which is represented by Peter. John's Gospel is not interested in that way. And that critique shows up, for example, in the fact that in John, there's no Eucharist, no Last Supper. Instead, there's foot washing. Or, for example, how the elite religious collaborators so clearly capitulate to Rome in Jesus' trial. And it also shows up in how Peter is treated. 
in this gospel. Peter gets demoted from leadership. There's no Peter being called the rock, the Petros, which is where we get the name Peter, the Petros of the church. There's no Peter being a witness to the transfiguration because there is no transfiguration in John. There's no Peter walking on water next to Jesus. In John, other disciples have roles. The women have major leadership roles. And Peter is portrayed as something like an overeager ally who has the right answers to the workshop on privilege questions. But when shit hits the fan, he denies ever knowing Jesus. And in John's gospel, not only does he deny Jesus, he does so right in Jesus's presence. Because of the critique on Peter and the emphasis in John's gospel on bodies, on embodiment, on feeding and healing and dusty feet needing washing and on emotion and mud and the stink of death down on the ground, even while the words are so esoteric, I think the Johannine community is critiquing what they think the more dominant flavor of Jesus following community represented by the character of Peter is becoming more hierarchical, ritualistic in ungrounded ways, women being subordinated, capitulating to Rome. If you read the letters attributed to Peter, written much later than living Simon Peter, of course, but claiming to be in his name and his tradition, that hierarchical, patriarchal, assimilating to empire position is very clear. In fact, when Second Peter showed up in the lectionary two years ago, I went to town on how terrible it is in that podcast. I'll post that link in the transcript, and I encourage you to listen because it informs how I'm understanding what's happening in John with its demoting of Peter. Those letters, the letters of Peter, overlap a bit in the time frame we think John's gospel and letters were written, around the end of the first century and the beginning or the beginning of the to the middle of the second century CE. So we can assume these dynamics are in the air jumbled up together and set the scene for what happens at the lakeshore. So imagine this encounter between Jesus and Peter by the lakeshore is Jesus calling Peter to account, not just for the denial during the trial, but also the denial that is forgetting what being a Jesus follower, a Jesus lover, is for. And we notice in this encounter that Jesus doesn't actually call him Peter, that very institutional founder of the church rock of a name but by what would have been his on-the-ground Hebrew name, Simon, son of John. Do you love me? Do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon Peter says, yes, 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 of course. And each time Jesus gives him a task, feed Attend. Feed. It's a reorientation in the midst of disorientation. It's reaffirmation after denial. It's remembering after forgetting. Not just on an individual level, but a whole collective systemic level. So yes, there are lessons here for us. 
Because whiteness denies this Jesus too. When we choose our comfort in the face of suffering, when we play our ally card when it's safe but claim to know nothing when shit hits the fan, when we claim to love but can't bring ourselves to action that actually shifts power, that actually proves black and brown life matters, do you love me? What I want us to hear as white folks is that this encounter by the lakeshore is for us too. A reorientation, reaffirmation, remembering. So here are three lessons for us to carry with us out of this encounter. Three bits of good news that Jesus offers us by the lakeshore. First of all, no one is disposable. No one is disposable. Not even Simon Peter, who denied knowing Jesus during his mockery of a trial, which I'd say is a pretty big harm. Yet here is Jesus, offering not condemnation, but a warm fire, breakfast, and the opportunity for repair. The tenet that no one is disposable is key for the practice of transformative justice and flies in the face of what we are taught about punishment and incarceration. I think this is why we as white folks are so afraid to make mistakes and often get frozen instead of act because white supremacist logic tells us we will be punished and tossed aside, incarcerated either through actual jails or social isolation. But no one is disposable. We have the chance to reorient, reaffirm, remember. Which leads us to the second question, which is that action, reparative action, is required for love. Do you love me? Yes. Then do something. And not just anything, but work that repairs the harm. In Peter's case, it's returning back to the practices of feeding people outside the systems that put in place by Rome that kept people hungry and hurting, which is how Jesus fed and healed everyone. Feed and tend and nourish everyone. Not hierarchies of harm, but these reparative on-the-ground practices of nourishing and tending to the whole entire well-being of people, of communities. That's what these verbs mean in Greek, feeding and tending to the whole entire well-being of the flock. Nourishment, protection, healing. Reparative action is required for love. And third, we all get fed and tended to. In creating this community that is rejecting Rome's logics about who is in and out, about who is worthy or not, about how food and healing are controlled to privilege those considered in and worthy, there's this fear. If we make a different choice, if we reject the empire's way, how will we eat? How will we live? How will we get medical care? Those are real things to be concerned about. Don't get me wrong. But in critiquing what becomes Peter's way, John's gospel reminds us we are to take care of each other. Feed, tend, 
feed, nourish, heal, love. There is something to imagine beyond what Rome says is the truth, the way, beyond what white supremacy says is the truth, the way. Simon Peter hauls in a huge net full of fish, an abundance of nourishment, which to me means that a community caring for one another outside the confines of imperial rules is actually possible. Other ways of being are actually possible. We will all get fed and tended to abundantly. And connecting all these three lessons together in John's gospel, Peter, people get healed and fed even when Jesus knows they don't understand. Judas gets his feet washed. Peter gets breakfast by the lake. Even when we mess up, there's a place for us in this community. When we mess up, come back to the basics. Feed. Tend. Feed. No one is disposable. Reparative action is required for love. We all get fed and tended to. Do you love me? Do you love me? Oh, people, do you love me? May our answer through our action be a resounding yes. As we shift into this section that's our call to action, I want us to think about these lessons as not only being for ourselves, the ones of us trying to be anti-racist but messing up and so forth. I also want us to think about how this needs to be part of the story we are telling to actually invite more people into a different vision for community, including inviting people we don't want to talk to, namely the folks who are being recruited by white nationalists. If we are not telling and embodying a different story to the one the U.S. empire is selling, be sure that white nationalists are. I've been thinking about Nicola's podcast, No More White Nationalist Bread, which tackles another part of John's gospel, and Margaret's podcast, Catching Our People, which would both make good companions to this one. We have to be living a completely different story and inviting others into that story which means that we have to believe into the vision that no one actually is disposable, that repair can happen, that all of us will be fed. None of that is the logic of white supremacy, but it is the logic of liberative love. And we have to make that so attractive that people will join us. People will want to be part of that including other white people who make us deeply uncomfortable, but who are vulnerable to the vision white nationalists are selling. I'll be honest, I'm not sure this will happen through the traditional institutional rock of a church. Maybe I'm wrong. But we need to be thinking and imagining beyond the rock of 
of the church, the rock of tradition, to be willing to see Jesus suffering and still claim him, even when that means dismantling theology that makes us as white folks comfortable. That's something I've learned during this podcast, is that leaving behind theology that harms is crucial to this work. So that's the first call to action, is to get some folks together and start talking about how to embody a different story and invite people into it. One way might be to learn and begin to practice transformative justice, for example. I'll put resources in the transcript. The second call to action repeats the call from Margaret from last week, which is to support the Black Mama's bailout. Here again, we have the opportunity to look suffering in the face and claim Jesus instead of the incarcerating logics of white supremacy. Cash bail and pretrial detention are a mockery of justice and rooted in white supremacy. So get your people together and help bail black mamas out of jail. Resources in the transcript. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are on this good earth. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages or on Twitter. And you can share your story with us via our listener survey at bit.ly slash TWIR100 survey. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash TWIR100 survey. Next week, Nicola Torbett will be back with a resistance word for us for May the 12th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there too if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. Finally, a huge thanks as always to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Max, I'm so grateful to you always. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap.